I'm Beth Bennett. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, September 14, 2021. Coming up, I talk with Dr. Dale Bredesen about his research into a new understanding of the causes of Alzheimer's disease, which has led to successful alternative therapies. But first, a look at some recent news in science. Humans have been getting hit with pandemics since we invented agriculture. The social lifestyle of ancient farmers meant that they lived with cows, pigs, and goats, and their poop, in settlements that eventually swelled to thousands of people. This in turn brought a surge in diseases such as influenza, tuberculosis, and others that spread from animals to people and on through communities. A new study of ancient DNA shows how the immune systems of those early farmers responded to this new pathogen-ridden environment. The study suggests that in Europeans, evolution favored genes that reduced inflammatory reactions to pathogens like influenza, restraining the immune response that can be deadlier than the pathogen itself. In COVID language, we call this the cytokine storm. Since early farmers got sick more often than nomadic hunter-gatherers, scientists wondered how their immune systems responded. A large group of researchers at universities in Germany and the Netherlands looked at this question. First, they took 500 banked blood samples and exposed the samples to various disease-causing pathogens. Then they measured levels of specific cytokines. These are the proteins that activate the immune system and looked for correlations between cytokines and a bunch of immune gene variants. They used these results to calculate a risk score that predicts the strength of the inflammatory response in the face of specific diseases. Then they did the same thing using ancient DNA sequences from over 800 remains found across Europe, dating from between 45,000 and 2,000 years ago. This analysis allowed the team to look for changes over time. They found that when faced with infections, Europeans who lived after agriculture produced dramatically lower levels of cytokines than earlier hunter-gatherers. Those lower levels were probably beneficial because when people first encounter new pathogens, some can overreact and die, like we see with COVID today. The study also revealed a remarkable flip side. When infected with the fungus candida and staphylococcus bacteria, these are pathogens that tend to start as infections localized to a small area in or on the body, farmers likely mounted more robust inflammatory responses than earlier hunter-gatherers. A strong inflammatory response can quell a localized infection before it spreads, but a robust systemic response, as sparked by flu or malaria, can spiral out of control. Although preliminary, the study clearly demonstrates that in Europe, the introduction of the agricultural lifestyle had a major influence on inflammatory responses to disease, and this ancient evolutionary change is still with us. It means that fewer people have likely died from the cytokine storm due to COVID than would have without that genetic change. This study was published earlier this week in eLife. Missing the in-person events at the CU Museum of Natural History? Me too. They're planning to start up again this fall, but for now you can visit virtual exhibits and join Zoom Talks. Tonight you can hear Rick Peterson discuss sustainable architecture and his redesign of McMurdo Station in Antarctica, a scientific research center at the bottom of the world. Currently, there's a 65-year-old station that serves as the primary logistical hub 
for the National Science Foundation's Polar Program, which supports inquiry across five realms of science. The focus of McMurdo's modernization is resource efficiency and to support the wellness and well-being of up to 1,200 researchers living and working in the driest, coldest, windiest place on Earth. The talk is moderated by Dr. Leanne Elder, Antarctic researcher and collection manager of invertebrate zoology at the CU Museum of Natural History. To find out more or to sign up for the Zoom, visit the calendar at colorado.edu forward slash CU Museum. Reach to play where the willow don't bend. There's not much more to be said. It's the top of the end. So I'm going. I'm going. I'm gone. A few weeks ago, I spoke with neurologist and Alzheimer's researcher Dale Bredesen. His work in the past decade has focused on developing a comprehensive theory underlying the development of Alzheimer's disease and subsequently a multi-pronged approach for successful treatment. You'll hear about both of these in our conversation. Welcome to the show, Dr. Dale Bredesen, and we'll be talking about your new book, The First Survivors of Alzheimer's Today. Thanks so much for having me on, Beth. Yeah, it's a pleasure to talk to you. You are a neurologist by training, and you've been working in the Alzheimer's field for decades now. And this is fantastic work because you actually offer people some hope. And that's what comes across in your book. So I'll just tell our listeners that the book, which, as I said, is called The First Survivors of Alzheimer's, focuses in the first half on patient stories. And they are truly incredible. What we'll focus on in the show is the science, which you get to explore in the second half of the book. So maybe we can start off, Dale, by talking about just what Alzheimer's is and what your theory of its causality is and how that differs from the conventional wisdom. That's a great point. Um, thank you for asking that, Beth, because that's what we spent 30 years in the laboratory looking at. What is the nature of this disease? If you look at something like COVID-19, you know, we know what it is. It's a virus. We have sequence. There are variants and so forth and so on. With Alzheimer's, as you indicated, it's actually been controversial. So people say, well, it's due to amyloid or it's due to tau or it's type 3 diabetes or it's due to herpes and on and on. Unfortunately, none of those theories has ever led to a successful treatment. As you know, it's been a real problem. And so we focused on what is the nature of this neurodegenerative process and why is it so common? It's now the third leading cause of death in the United States and the number two in the UK. So it's a, and unfortunately, it's actually dwarfs the COVID-19 pandemic. About 45 million Americans will die from this uh, if we don't do something about it. So uh, what we focused on is what are the molecular events that lead to this degenerative process? And what we found was very much against the classic theory. Uh, what we found is that this is fundamentally an insufficiency. So just as you might have an insufficiency of vitamin C and get scurvy, this is a complex insufficiency in which you have a plasticity network in your brain. You have a set of things that's required to make and store memories and learned behaviors and things like that. And that you have a balance. 
you have a set of things that support that, that are what we call synaptoblastic. They can make and keep synapses. Then there's a whole set of things that are synaptoclastic that are pulling back on these synapses. And unfortunately, as we get older, things change. And if you're on the wrong side of that equation, then you literally pull back on your synapses. And that can be because you have um, ongoing inflammation. It can be because you have exposure to toxins that your body is dealing with. It can be because you don't have enough support, energetic support, uh, because you don't have enough oxygenation. For example, you might have sleep apnea or because you have poor blood flow or because you have poor mitochondrial function. And then the fourth of the main groups is trophic support. And this is growth factors like nerve growth factor and brain-derived neurotrophic factor. It's hormones, estradiol, testosterone, progesterone, pregnenolone, thyroid, things like that, which support. And by the way, insulin is another one that supports your synapses. And it's uh, nutrition, things like vitamin D and vitamin B12. And by the way, many of the same things that were risk factors for poor outcome from COVID-19 are also risk factors for Alzheimer's disease, such as hypertension, obesity, insulin resistance, hypovitaminosis D, things like that. So what our research showed is the nature of this disease and showed that then we have to address those things. And so you lay out in your book these I think there's about half a dozen major causes and you can actually diagnose them separately. So we'll jump into some of those details and treat them separately. But I wanna um, digress for a minute to the metaphor that you have because it's such a good metaphor. It's very powerful of the leaky roof. So maybe yes. give our listeners um, the details to that and how it applies to Alzheimer's disease. Right. So what we can see is that there is this balance and your brain is literally with Alzheimer's, it's going into a protective downsizing mode. And, you know, much like we all did with COVID-19, where we were told to social distance and shelter in place, and we ended up with a recession. That's exactly what's going on in your brain. You're responding to these various pathogens. And so uh, you know, people, people respond to this by, by having this downsizing phenomenon. Uh, and uh, so when, so we evaluate those very things that are actually causing that. And as you indicated, um, these are things that will give you a different subtype. So each person is a little bit different. In some cases, it's more of an inflammatory type of Alzheimer's. And in some cases, it's more of an atrophic type. Some cases, it's more of a vascular type. Some cases, it's more of a glycotoxic type and so forth and so on. So yes, it's, it's it, what, what we've thought of as one disease is actually a complex chronic insufficiency where we can look at these different uh, contributors, uh, both the positives and the negatives, and we can now restore the balance that should be there. And according to some of the patient stories, and those narratives yes. are wonderful, I do encourage people to read those. According to some of their narratives, the treatment can be really different depending on what the primacy of those causal factors are. And I was really interested and intrigued to find out that some of the major causal factors are things like past infections. I had no idea that some of these parasites and pathogens could exert their influence in the brain. That's exactly right. And by the way, the, you know, the neuropathologists who have been reporting on this for years have looked in the brains of patients with Alzheimer's disease. And what have they found? They've found P. gingivalis, which is a, which is a, a pathogen that's associated with poor dentition. 
They found herpes simplex, which of course is associated with cold sores. They found various fungi in the brain, which can come, for example, from, uh, from chronic sinusitis. They found HHV6A, which is a her another type of herpes. So in fact, there are multiple of these. And what's happening is your brain is responding by making the amyloid that has been vilified in Alzheimer's disease. You're, but again, you're switching over to a downsizing protective mode and you're making this amyloid, which has an antimicrobial effect. And so it's fine to get rid of it after you've gotten rid of the reason that it's being there, uh, for its being there. But you don't want to simply get rid of this when it's actually trying to protect you from these various insults. And of course, as you mentioned, people turn out to have chronic infections. And as an example, in the seven stories, uh, Julie, the seventh of the seven stories, uh, was someone who who was actually backsliding. She'd improved initially, but she started going downhill, and it turned out that she did have an infection with Babesia, which had been undiagnosed. And of course, these chronic pathogens, you can have them for many years and not know it. And her doctors hadn't figured this out. She turned out to have Babesia, which is a cousin of malaria. It's a parasite. And when she got that treated, she again improved. Sally, another one of the seven stories, turned out to have mycotoxins. Now, they both had other things as well, but these were their rate-limiting steps that when we addressed those, helped them to improve. And so Sally had exposure to various mold-produced toxins. And again, unfortunately, many doctors are not checking for these things, and it's important to check for all the different potential contributors to cognitive decline. And I think it's really important. I want to go back to the point you just made about A-beta, that is amyloid beta, the protein that is commonly associated and by many people as a causal factor in right. Alzheimer's. And your view, which must get you a lot of flack from the research community, is that it's a protective factor. And in fact, the listeners to this show might remember that about a month ago, I did a little story on Atacaman. Canamab, I have a hard time pronouncing yeah. that word, um, which is the newly approved drug and it targets amyloid. So there's a fundamental dif difference, a, a big split between your approach, which is actually working in patients and these new drugs. And there have been thousands of drugs tested against A beta, and they're not doing anything, but they're very expensive and they can have harmful side effects, as you note in your book. Yes. And, and it, you know, it is confusing. I, I totally understand it. It's confusing for people to think, you know, is this a protective mechanism? Is it downsizing? Is it, you know, is it something negative? And the answer is both. And, and that's the trick. And so again, the good analogy with COVID-19, we were told to do, to do the sheltering in place, et cetera. And because of that, we went into this protective mode and we went into a recession. So, and this is what's happening in your brain. You are protecting yourself, but in so doing, you are now shrinking your brain. So to get back to where you want to be, we want to identify the things that you're trying to protect yourself from. And I do think in the long run, there probably will be a good role for removing the amyloid after you've removed all the reasons. But as you indicated, the drugs that have done nothing but remove amyloid without looking at all the causes, and you mentioned the 36 holes in the roof, which is what we tell the patients, all these different things, because we initially identified 36 different contributors. So we say to people, great, a drug is an excellent patch for one hole. 
but you've got 35 more. You may have uh, low specific hormones. You may have ongoing inflammation, pathogens, as you mentioned, toxins and things like that. So therefore you need to get all of those things. These are all critical. And so, yes, that's the, you know, that's the tricky part. The amyloid is a mediator of the downsizing, but it's because it's trying to protect you from these various pathogens. So it's a little confusing, but yes, it's, it's part of both. And we can get rid of the problem by, again, addressing the, the things that it's actually trying to protect you from. Right. And so I think one of the fantastic things that you point out in this book and some of your other work is that since everyone is different, this is really a call for people to engage in personalized medicine, which as a geneticist myself, I think that is always the way to go because everyone yes. is so different. But it must be hard for people to find somebody that can deal with all these different issues. So do you have suggestions for our listeners in terms of what do you do if you are concerned about this disease and you want to maybe get tested or diagnosed and find out how to deal with it? It's a great point. And so we've trained now over 2000 physicians in uh, 10 different countries and all over the United States. Um, and of course, in Colorado, you've got some fantastic doctors there. Uh, Dr. Eileen Naomi Rusk, who's a neuropsychologist, but deals with cognitive decline and uses this approach and this protocol. Um, Dr. Jill Carnahan uh, is there, who's uh, fantastic, especially uh, focusing on mycotoxins and related things. Um, and so she's done a fantastic job. And there are, there are other as well. Uh, you live in a very enlightened state. Uh, so th there's actually a lot that can be done. Um, and you can look under drbredison.com and there are many, many physicians all over the country and in other countries now who are looking at this. But you're right. We are at the beginning of an era of a, a real revolution in medicine. And unfortunately, it's a bloody revolution because a lot of people um, are, are, you know, are sick needlessly uh, because we are still practicing 20th century medicine where you simply ask, what is it? And then you write a prescription instead of 21st century medicine, where you ask instead, why is it? And then you deal with the things that are causing, what's causing the problem. You know, if you go in with hypertension, something that's simple, people just say, well, we're going to write you a prescription for an antihypertensive. Well, wait a minute. Why did you get hypertension? If you deal with the things that are actually causing it, you do much better. And that comes back to the people who are in the book and people who are on our clinical trial that we published recently. Um, they often uh, were able to get rid of their antihypertensives, rid of their anti-diabetes drugs, and rid of their statins because they're actually doing the right thing and addressing physiology instead of trying to treat blindly. And it was fascinating to me to read, too, that many of the people in your book, their spouses adopted the same program as a measure of support for the spouse yeah. that they loved, and they, too, improved their health and their memory. And speaking of memory, I'm intrigued by this finding that um, Alzheimer's is this sort of umbrella phenotype or observable disease process that is due to a whole host of causes. And so I think it makes sense that what is first obvious is an impact on the higher order function of the brain that is learning and memory. But then that filters down into other aspects. It, it has to, um, yeah. and it must affect other functional parts of the brain. And um, I guess this is manifest in that horrifying statistic you mentioned that Alzheimer's is the third leading cause of death now in the U.S. So could you talk briefly about what 
the disease process does to the brain itself? Absolutely. And so what this is about is we, a lot of people know about osteoporosis, where you have osteoblasts that are making bone and osteoclasts that are chewing up the bone. And so by doing that, it's a little bit like working on your house all the time. You're continually making your bone better. As you get older, the osteoblastic activity is outstripped by the osteoclastic activity. So you now get thinner bones and you ultimately can get osteoporosis and things like that. Alzheimer's is synaptoporosis. So again, you have an imbalance in what's making and keeping the synapses due to these changes we've talked about and versus what is actually pulling back. And so you're beginning to lose synapses. Ultimately now, after you lose the synapses, you're now pulling back on the neurites themselves, the axons themselves, and then ultimately the neurons themselves are actually dying. And with that, you have an inflammatory process, you have gliosis, you have astroglia as well as micro in this inflammatory process. So it is degenerative and to a lesser extent inflammatory. So these are all part of the Alzheimer's process, but it begins with changes in this synaptic ratio in the production versus the destruction of the synapses. And if I were going to speculate, which I love to do, I would guess that in many of the people that have recovered as they have gone through your program, which I should note can take several years for some people, but people are recovering. So I'm guessing that there is some damage to the brain, but they are encouraging support in other areas of the brain that uh, can produce some redundancy and pick up some other functions that were lost initially. Like these people um, in your book, they report incredible memory loss and cognitive loss and they come back and their scores on their tests reflect that so i'm yes. just wondering if you have seen that like have you had access to any i hate to say this but autopsy results for people that have recovered or is it too soon to say too soon on, on the autopsies. We haven't had autopsy results. However, we do know um, that people um, have improved their MRIs, for example, and we reported this in the clinical trial, for example. Um, and, you know, Deborah was a very interesting, one of the seven wrote a beautiful story uh, and talked about her, her father dying, her grandmother dying, and then looking at her children and worrying about them. And she recovered and has done very well. And interestingly, she got back the ability to play the piano. She had lost the ability to sight read music. She got that back. She lost the ability to speak foreign language. She, she spoke a couple of foreign languages, lost that, got it back. Edward, who talks about his story in the book, got back the ability to add number. He had been very good with adding numbers and columns very quickly, you know, ahead of his accountants. And he got that back. So yes, the brain is a very plastic organ as Professor Mike Mersnick from UC San Francisco and the one who really started brain training, as Professor Mersnick has shown over the years, um, this is your brain is quite plastic. And so you can make a big difference. Now you brought up an important point. What about the people who are very far along and have lost a lot of synapses and have lost a lot uh, of neurons themselves? Um, we're interested in that. The people in our trial 
were um, you know, mid-stage and above. So they were people who had uh, so-called pre-Alzheimer's and early Alzheimer's. We're interested in doing a separate trial for very late-stage Alzheimer's because we know anecdotally there are some people who improve, but it's much, much harder to get improvement with people later. Stem cells may be you know, one thing that needs to be added. There are you know, other things. The bottom line is that there is an arsenal like never before. We've all been told that there's nothing that can be done. There's a lot that can be done, and especially if you start early. We really can, if people will get on prevention and early reversal, we really can make this disease optional. Yeah, I think that's a great point that prevention is not only possible, but desirable. And so again, I, I will point people to your book because there's so many different steps that one can take uh, right. to that will all work together in a preventive program. And so if you're not seeing any memory loss you can start with some of these programs and it'll protect your memory against loss. But also I'd like to point out that something you suggest in the book is it's never too late to get tested, never too soon to get tested either. Right. So yeah. people should be aware of that, that there can be memory loss that's very subtle. And maybe it's good, say for instance, when you're 40 to get a baseline Done. Absolutely. And then we talked about improving normal cognition because so many of us, we have normal cognition, but it's actually suboptimal because we haven't addressed some of these things. So this is why we recommend just like everyone who turns 50 should get a colonoscopy. Everyone who's 45 or over should get a cognoscopy. And that's, a, I should say it's a, you know, much more pleasant than a colonoscopy, uh, and it's easy to do. And it's basically getting a you know a series of blood tests that are looking at things that often your doctor will not look at. So you want to know your HSCRP and your homocysteine and your C4A and things like this that are all related to your risk for cognitive decline. Then secondly, you want to have a simple online cognitive test because as you mentioned, uh, you can have minor changes and not really realize it or just think, oh yeah, I'm just getting a little older. That's been one of the big problems. People wait so long because they say, well, I'm just getting a little older, so I'm expecting to have my cognition affected. And so please don't wait. There's, in fact, if you're having problems with cognition, um, there are, there is a reason. Things haven't been optimized. And then the third is optional, unless you're symptomatic. So if you have no symptoms and you're just there for prevention, you're scoring well on the, on the cognitive test, you don't need to do an MRI. But if you do have symptoms, it's important to do an MRI with volumetrics. So in other words, they're actually looking at the volume of your hippocampus and your gray matter and things like that, because these are areas that actually shrink down during Alzheimer's disease. And again, as I mentioned earlier, we saw in the MRIs, they actually improved when you do the right things. Right. And so unfortunately, we have to leave it there, but I will link to your book and to your website so that people can find out more. And I want to thank you so much for talking today. This has been a really fascinating subject. Great to talk with you, Beth. Thank you so much. That was Dr. Dale Bredesen, an authority in the mechanisms of neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's disease, and the author of the several books on Alzheimer's disease. We were talking about his new book, The First Survivors of Alzheimer's. You can find links to the book and his website in the show notes. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. I'm the executive producer, and I produced this week's show. Longtime How on Earth producer Joel Parker provided the headline. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music by Bob Dylan. 
You can visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, links to material from the show, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.